Are you ready to talk about sexual fantasies? Are you ready to talk about the science behind them and get a little bit nerdy on where do these come from? Are these normal? How many other people are thinking what I'm thinking? How many other people desire what I desire? The more conversations we have around this, the better, especially in this really beautiful time of exploration and women coming into their power. Part of coming into your power is understanding more about your desires and what brings you pleasure and normalizing it, normalizing it. Let's all normalize our sexual fantasies. So in this podcast, um, yeah, it's really important for me to say up front, um, I don't, I guess this would be if I was ever to use a trigger warning, this would be a trigger warning because we talk about desires and one of those that we are going to be speaking about is the rape fantasy. So there is very sensitive content in this podcast episode and I would like to encourage you to use your own judgment if you are going to venture into this um this delightful little <laughs> episode that Dr. Justin Lay Miller and I co-create. Just know that that does come up. We do speak of such things. We talk about sex in many different lights and aspects. And I get super personal. Probably one of the most personal episodes I've done. Because, hey, when I'm feeling it and I'm in the conversation, my sensor and filter just kind of turns off. So you're going to get to know me really well. And uh, Dr. Lay Miller is such a doctor. He's like all about the research. So we don't get Oh, we don't get the total inside scoop on what his fantasies are. And I'm definitely left wondering about that. But you will hear about some of mine. So I, um, I'm giving this episode over to you with tenderness uh, because it is a vulnerable thing to be sharing, especially afterwards. I don't know if you ever heard of vulnerability hangover. But after I recorded this podcast with him, I was like, oh, my God, what did I just share? So this is going live, or this is going up on my podcast feed unedited and raw, so you're hearing the ins and outs, nothing has been cut out, and I hope therefore you really enjoy it, because I am walking my talk of wanting to validate and normalize real desires, real um, cravings, real fantasies, and that's my purpose here, is to be a vessel and to as my bio says, be a walking permission slip. So in order for me to be a walking permission slip, I need to be giving myself permission to show up exactly how I am and then air that for the world to hear. <laughs> that is my path in this lifetime. So with all that said, enjoy this episode with Dr. Justin Lay Miller. Let's talk a little bit about him. He received his PhD in social psychology from Purdue University. He is a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and he's the author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Dr. Leigh Miller is an award-winning educator, having been honored three times with the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from Harvard University, where he taught for several years. He is also a prolific researcher and scholar who has published more than 40 academic works to date, including a textbook entitled The Psychology of Human Sexuality, now in its second edition. 
that he is bleh, that is used in college classrooms around the world. His research focuses on topics including casual sex, sexual fantasy, sexual health, and friends with benefits. His studies have appeared in all of the leading journals on human sexuality, including the Journal of Sex Research, Archives of Sexual Behavior, and the Journal of Sexual Medicine. And that is a little bit about this very scientific human being. I mean, imagine dedicating your entire life to understanding sexual desires, fantasies, behaviors. I think it'd be a pretty interesting day-to-day life. I mean, I wish I could see his vision board. If he, like, created a vision board 10 years ago, imagining the lifestyle he wanted, I think it'd be a very colorful vision board. Anyways, today's review of the week comes from Savannah Youngblood. What a cool last name, if that is your last name. Spiritual Deep Dive with five stars. This podcast has changed my life. It has helped me get in tune with my authentic self and has led me to countless other podcasts. Moon is amazing at interviewing. She always asks well-informed questions and it never feels like a forced conversation. She seems to really flow with the guests that she has on. She has recently switched gears and she's doing more solo episodes, which rocks because she has such great advice and insights. If you want to go deeper on your spiritual journey, this is the podcast for you. If you want to love your body and be inside your body, this is the podcast for you. If you want to be more in tune with your feminine and masculine energy, this is the podcast for you. P.S. Her Instagram is so beautiful and she's very active on the platform. You can tell she really cares about her followers. You are amazing, Savannah. I adore you. I adore you. I love you. This is so sweet. This is warming, touching, generous. It feels so good. I, I actually saw your name pop up liking one of my photos after I read this review on Instagram. And I was like, this girl rocks. So thank you. <laughs> I so appreciate you taking the time to pull up iTunes, rate it and review it. It means a lot to me. So with all of that said, I think it's time we head on over to this really juicy deep dive on dishing out the science behind sexual fantasies. Welcome to the Mind Body Musings podcast. How are you today? Great. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing so good. <laughs> it's so lovely to be able to, I mean, first off, we're in this beautiful hotel in New York City. There's this massive church outside and all of the buildings were in this beautiful concrete jungle. It kind of feels like a podcaster's paradise right now to be able to be in this environment and do this in person with you. It absolutely is. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I've had the pleasure of reading the majority of your book, like actually reading it, and then getting some uh, um, consumer ADD and switching over to Audible <laughs> and then getting to listen to it, which you did. Uh, you recorded it yourself. Yep. I'm just I'm just curious. How was that experience for you to actually sit down and read your own book and do it for the, the audio book? It was 
personally challenging and exhausting. Uh, so for me, I had never done anything where I was performing with just my voice before and not having anything else to rely on. So it was, it was a growth experience for me and challenging me to, to do something different uh, performatively that I'd never done before. But then also sitting in a studio for 17 hours is just a mm. really taxing thing. How many days did it take you to do that? It was spread out over three days. Oh, and, uh, wow. Oh my gosh, that's so much. Yeah. So the first question that I always ask my guest is, what are you currently musing about? What's really intriguing and exciting to you? Anything. It can be related to fantasies and the research that you do in your field, or it can be about travel, relationships, life, whatever. So for me, a big thing right now is travel and just going out and seeing new different things, having lots of new experiences. Uh, I had an experience in the last couple of years where um, a family member got really, really sick at a really young age, and it helped me to realize that I can't delay pleasure and delay mm. fun and delay all the things I want to do too long. I need to do the things I want to do now. And so I've been going out and really taking advantage of that and living life to the fullest. Mm -hmm. And then how do you do that in Indianapolis <laughs> where you're from? So I'm, I, I live in Indianapolis and Indianapolis. One of, yes. Indianapolis. Uh, one of the things that is uh, nice about living in India is that it's kind of in the, middle of the country it's midwestern and it's really cheap and so it's i can kind of travel anywhere i want and mm. it, it doesn't cost that much so it's a good place to be from that standpoint that's so true it's interesting like living here i get the day-to-day -day of of magic and culture and excitement mm -hmm. which i love and i'm really relishing right now and like from a financial standpoint i'm kind of like i'll just chill here for a bit i'll just stay here i don't really need to buy a ticket to go fly somewhere else right now but then also like energetically Mm -hmm. I imagine that living there, your downtime is truly downtime and you're resting so that when you go and you have these explorations, you have the energy for it. And I notice here, like, I get really tired that even the idea of going to travel more, like, makes me feel like, oh, my God, I don't think I, <laughs> I don't have, the, have the energy for it, which is, for me, a good place to be because I've done so much traveling recently that I just want to be where I'm at. Right. So it's really interesting, like, this yin and yang energy that we can experience in different cities. Okay, so the work that you do in this world, you are a, a sexuality researcher, uh, and specifically, Tell Me What You Want, your book, is about the largest sexual fantasy study, is that correct? In the United States, yeah. In the United States, 4,000 people, mm -hmm. um, which, wow, mind-blowing that you were, uh, you had the patience and the devotion and the interest and the passion to be able to slow down and to monitor such a large study. I can't even imagine what that would be like. And uh, I like this question. We don't have to get too deep into it, but I'm just curious what led you here to this? What led you to want to do this kind of research in this particular study? Sure. So as a sex educator, I've taught human sexuality courses in college classes for about 10 years. And sexual fantasies are one of the topics that students were always really interested in. And they had a lot of questions that I wasn't able to answer based on the research that was out there. And so one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to ask and answer a lot of those questions that just hadn't previously been explored. And I find that fantasies are something that almost everybody has and almost everybody wonders if they're normal. And there's also lots of questions out there about 
should you tell your partner your fantasy? Should you act on them? And how do you do that in a safe way? And so I wanted to also provide this guidebook in a way that can help people feel more comfortable with their fantasies and understand why it's important to, to get more in touch with them. Mm. Something in your book, right from the get-go, you identified it. Um, it's called uh, paraphilias. Yes. Paraphilias, and what are those? Paraphilia is a term that psychologists and psychiatrists use to refer to any kind of unusual sexual interest. Which is like everything that was listed in, in the in the what what was it, a psychology book or something like everything. Can you give us some examples of what are very normal things that were listed as unusual sex? Sure. I have a, a book at home that lists more than 500 different things as paraphilias. And it says uh, oral sex is included on there, anal sex, uh, being turned on by dirty talk, all, all these sorts of things um, have been labeled as, as paraphilias. And so one of my goals was also to look at, well, just how unusual are those things? Uh, or are they perhaps normative instead? Because I think a lot of people, they worry that they're weird or unusual just because we don't necessarily have the data on how many people are, say, turned on by those things. Mm, and no one's talking about it. Right. Yeah. Where do you believe that a lot of the shame people have for what they're into originates from? I, I think a lot of it you can trace back to religious and cultural factors where we've been taught and conditioned for a long time that what is normal when it comes to sex is this very narrow restricted thing so penile vaginal intercourse within the context of a heterosexual monogamous marriage for a long time has really been considered the only valid form of sexual expression and so it's really only been recently that that people have uh, begun to feel freer to express themselves sexually in, in different ways but there's still a lot of shame that they carry around about sort of violating those traditional norms those religious values that they've been taught hmm. and how are you what is one of the like the biggest factors for seeing a lot of the um the shifts happening with people being more open what is allowing for the openness to begin so that people can tell each other what they want <laughs> So we've seen, at least in the United States, that there's been this progressive liberalization in sexual attitudes oh. over time. If you go by decades, you can see that uh, progressively each each year, each decade, um, American sexual attitudes become more liberal. And, and actually, they're, they're the most liberal on record that they've ever been. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're accepting of everything, just that they're sort of moving in that direction of greater acceptance of sexual diversity. And one of the biggest changes we've seen is uh, acceptance of same-sex relationships mm -hmm. and um, uh, also acceptance of sex outside of marriage, right? Uh, so for a long time, uh, you know, Americans disapproved of that, but now you have, uh, you know, a majority who say that that's okay. Mm. Can I ask about your own background? Were you raised in a religious background and any kind of like having that repressed? So my family was not particularly religious growing up. We kind of jumped back and forth between a few different religions. Um, my mom's side of the family was Baptist and had very, very strict beliefs uh, about sex. My dad's side was Catholic. Uh, they also had pretty strict beliefs. Um, but my parents, uh, they decided to, to kind of do a compromise religion. And so they tried to raise us Lutheran for a while. 
I don't know, for some reason, then we ended up in Catholic schools after that. And (laughs) then, you know, for a while we were at some non-denominational Christian church. And so we kind of like went back and forth between a lot of different things. And so for me, I never felt a strong affinity with one particular religion because I was kind of raised in a lot of different churches. Mm -hmm. And then also as a kid, we spent all of our time at the local Jewish community center. That's sort of where we had like all of our social activities and uh, where we played sports as kids. And so all of my friends growing up were Jewish. And so I, I was kind of exposed to a lot of different things. And I think that's sort of why I don't have one dominant religion I'm drawn to. And are, how are you today? Like, are you, are you religious in general? Or are you spiritual in general? Um, (laughs) I consider myself to be, uh, agnostic Mm -hmm. because as a scientist, I think you always need to be open to possibilities. And I think that for me, it means I'm exploring and I'm open to, to evidence and, and different things. But, um, yeah, I'm still figuring that out myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's really interesting. Okay. So going back to, um, going back to the study that you did, there's one thing that you did you did just touch on that I wanted to point out in this podcast as well, that um, being, you wrote in your book that being homosexual was classified as a mental health disorder for a period of time. Up until the early 1970s. It 1970s, was, that yeah. is not, that is not long ago. Nope. And when you think about that, because now we're, we're, where we're at now, where we're just like, yeah, of course, like we love who we love, we're attracted to what we're attracted to. And one point of time, and this is kind of a silly metaphor, but like at one point of time in the health world where we're all like, oh, you can't eat these things because, you know, fat's bad. And now we're like, that was dumb. Fat's great. Same thing now with sexuality, too. It's like, oh, you can't like what you like. Oh, just kidding. That's dumb. Let's be open. What are the other things that right now we're in a time that people are saying is wrong? that in 30 years we're going to say, oh, that's dumb. Let's be open to that too. Like this is one of the, one of the things that I love to come back to whenever we're living in a society, because the only reason why shame is a thing is because of society. It would not exist without society. You literally cannot have shame without it. You also can't have so many other beautiful things without society. It's brought us a lot, Mm -hmm. but if society wasn't around we wouldn't have these feelings about being wrong or dirty or impure about the things that are us that we're attracted to and where I'm at in my own life is I I know my mind is just her own thing like I never ever personally let my thoughts mean anything about me I have crazy thoughts like like thoughts that you would not think that I have ever. No one would ever assume that would pop in, but I can't control these things, right? We think we have free will. We actually really don't because if you think of a time that's really bothered you and you found yourself found yourself obsessing, 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 and then you're like, stop obsessing. I need to stop thinking about that. And then you go do the dishes and then literally what are you doing as you do the dishes? You're obsessing again, but you're not realizing it because the mind likes to do its own stuff. So I always like to remember that when we're coming back into especially this world of fantasies and what we desire is that sometimes sometimes it is a glimpse into what we long for. And there is, there is definitely something around um, the being taken fantasy that we can get into because I know I, I have this. I relate to this very strongly. And I think I know why I do. So for that case, that kind of fantasy, I do think there is a link. I think there is a desire there. I want to be ravished and taken without my, my will, right? For, for reasons that I know why. 
because mm-hmm. I'm always in control. And it's it's such a like fantasy, a taboo type thing to feel like I have no choice. I just have to surrender. It's hot, right? And then there are other thoughts that I have that I don't go there. I'm just like, you know, that popped in my head because like if I told myself not to think about a purple apple, what am I going to think about, right? So sometimes we have these quote bad or you know naughty or dirty thoughts and they really don't mean anything about us it's just it's just because society told us not to think it is why we think about it so my question within all of that is how do we distinguish between the two between what could be useful for us to dive deeper into and look at because it's showing us something that actually could be really healing for us versus we're thinking about something because we have this subconscious belief that we can't think about it so we do i think that's a really good really insightful question and my answer is that it depends on the person because what is meaningful is going to vary depending on that individual's personality so for example one of the things i found in my research was that for people who have really overactive imaginations where they think all the time and imagine all of these bizarre fantasy kinds of scenarios, science fiction kinds of scenarios. Um, For those individuals, any given fantasy might not be that meaningful in the sense that it might not say anything about you other than that you just have an active imagination. But for somebody who doesn't have that same level of imaginative activity, their fantasies might be much more revealing of that individual as a person and say their their personality traits, their sexual history and so forth. So I think that kind of complicates the factors as you need to understand the person and do they just have a very wide fantasy repertoire as somebody with an overactive imagination does or is it more limited and, and therefore says something more specific about you? Mm, yeah, I feel that. One of the questions I received on Instagram when I said I was going to be speaking with a sexual fantasy researcher today, someone had said, I don't have any fantasies ever. Mm -hmm. This is a thing? It is. So in my research, I found that there were about two to three percent of people who said they don't have sexual fantasies. And if you look at other sexual fantasy research, you find the same thing. This is a really consistent finding. It's two to three percent of people who just say, I don't have them. And something I've been curious about is who are these people and how are they maybe different from people who do have fantasies? And one of the things that I found in the process of looking into this is that there are some people who have what's called aphantasia, which is this inability to voluntarily visualize mental imagery, right? So they can't bring mental pictures to mind, whether they're sexual or not. And so for these individuals, that might explain why they don't fantasize it's it's maybe more related to just their general ability to to visualize imagery it could also be that in some of these individuals who don't have sexual fantasies uh it, it could be an indicator of uh very low interest in sex mm. or very very low sex drive so it could be different things for different people but i think the aphantasia piece is is really Afant- interesting it's a beautiful word mm-hmm. aphantasia <laughs> um and i'm ass- i'm assuming too that that could potentially come from being raised in a religious family where like everything was just off limits. You couldn't think about it, talk about it, dream about it. Um, but see, then I would assume that you'd, your mind would do that because you're not allowed to. 
Right. And, and so that's one of the things I find in my data is that you get that ironic effect where when people are reared in environments that encourage them to suppress all of their sexual thoughts, that just leads to this more obsessive preoccupation with them. And then mm-hmm. they find themselves thinking about it all the time. Going back to that, don't think about a purple apple yeah. analogy <laughs> that you mentioned. If you tell people don't think about sex, well, they're going to think about yeah. sex. Yeah. Um, okay. One of the things that I'm really excited to talk with you about is the way we perceive ourselves in our own fantasies and specifically the differences between if you're a male and you're imagining your fantasies and you are a female, Mm -hmm. what did you notice in your research there? So I found that almost everybody, when they picture a fantasy scenario, pictures themselves in it at least sometimes, right? So we are actors in our own sexual fantasies for the most part. However, most people also change themselves in some ways when they're picturing themselves in these scenarios. And that could be changing their body, changing their genital appearance, uh, or changing their personality or behavior. And I see that for men and women and also people of different sexual orientations, they change themselves in somewhat different ways. One of the big differences I see is if you look at heterosexual men and women, heterosexual women are much more likely to fantasize about changing their body appearance, whereas heterosexual men are much more likely to fantasize about changing their genital appearance. And I think this speaks to broader cultural pressures that are put on men and women uh, that encourage them to change themselves in specific ways, right? Men are supposed to be large in terms of their genitals. Uh, and, and women are supposed to have these slender bodies and large breasts and so forth. And so I think these cultural pressures are, are seeping into our fantasies. And it's also interesting when you look at um, uh, gay and bisexual men in particular, I see that they're the group that actually changes themselves the most out of Mm -hmm. everybody. Because within the gay community, there's not only that pressure to have large penises, but also uh, to to have these very muscular bodies and to conform to this very masculine body ideal. Uh, So we see that all these broader cultural pressures to look a certain way are, are creeping into our fantasies. And how is this detrimental to ourselves and to our relationships? Is it, is it detrimental at all, or is it something that really doesn't affect us in real life? So changing yourself in your fantasy is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Most of us do this, and, and we might do it for different reasons. So to go back to the overactive imagination thing I was talking about earlier, um, people who, who fantasize a lot and about a lot of different things might picture themselves inhabiting very different bodies when they're doing this. So, so for some people, changing yourself isn't a bad thing. Um, but for others, when they've internalized this certain body ideal and they don't feel good about themselves and the way they look, in their fantasy, they're sort of trying to picture themselves in a way that buffers them from that negative self-view. And so I think it's actually sort of this self-protective thing in mm-hmm. the fantasy where they're trying to deal with body anxiety by picturing themselves in a body where they don't feel that same sense of anxiety mm-hmm. that they do in real life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I definitely see that. Um Yeah, it's really interesting when I'm thinking about my own fantasies. I never, I won't say never, for the fantasies that I'm very conscious and aware to, I don't know what I look like in it. I don't even think about myself, honestly. I know who else is around, 
but it's like I'm I'm in my body. I'm not right. a t- I'm not a bird like up in the sky watching it all happen where I see myself and I like I am there. And so I it's like I'm looking out of my own eyes in my fantasy. Now that speaks to another really interesting question that I wish I would have thought of when I was initially conducting the study. Um, but unfortunately, I couldn't think of everything in advance. I needed to have some data first. And that is, what is the perspective that people take when they have a sexual fantasy? Is it from this third person perspective where they're basically watching a movie and they're a character in it and so they see themselves? Uh, or is it from a first person point of view perspective where they're sort of looking out of their own eyes and so they're not necessarily seeing themselves in the same way. They're, they're not the focal point of the fantasy. And I think there may be some some gender differences there in the way that the, the perspectives we take in our fantasies and that could have implications for whether you're changing yourself or not. Yeah. I wonder if that would actually say something a bit about your personality. Like I maybe like because I don't I'm not really looking at myself and I'm just absorbed in the moment. Like there's something I don't know. I'm curious what Carl Jung would say about that. But yeah, it's it's I've never thought about this, about what I look like until right now. when I'm thinking, oh, I don't even know what I look like. Just me. Mm -hmm. Like it's just how I am right now, I guess, Um, because it's more about what's happening um, what I'm seeing, it's like I've become someone very um, tuned into the senses and my fantasies, like mm-hmm. the sensation of what is going on. And yeah, like the, the story, the storyline is everything in mine. Hello, hello, hello. We're going to take a very quick pause. I know you guys are fascinated by listening to me talking about whether or not my face shows up in my fantasies, but I've got something that might pique your interest even a little more. And that is today's show sponsor, which is Candor. Candor's mission is to reconnect us with food, starting with the new standard of radical transparency. In fact, that is their tagline, radically honest food, because they're completely upfront about all the flaws in their food, and they want to create a gold standard of transparency so that there's one less roadblock between us as the consumers and what we're putting inside of our bodies. And one of their biggest missions is to help us take back our mornings from caffeine abuse. And don't get me wrong, I do love coffee, but something that I love and millions of other people, it seems, loves is matcha. And it's so much better for you from all the studies that I've read. Matcha is this really beautiful, clean, pure source of energy throughout the day. And Kendor makes a specific coconut matcha mix that will give you sustainable energy throughout the day, plus prebiotic fiber. So it's really good for your gut health. Plus it has fat. It has MCT oil and coconut milk, which is fabulous for making it a brain boosting ingredient. It's a nootropic latte. That means if you drink it in the morning, especially you're going to have extra mental stamina. I adore this brand. I have talked about this before, but I can't really consume mixed powders with any kind of almond milk. It gives me an instant headache. No idea why. I can with coconut milk. That said, I don't always have coconut milk on hand, so any kind of mix that I consume, it needs to taste really good in water. And Candor does that. Their coconut matcha is fabulous in water. It's creamy and thick. And they don't steer you wrong about giving you extra brain power throughout the day. So I'll drink this first thing in the morning. It's tasty. It's yummy. I might even add a little bit of extra stevia with it. And I think you're going to love it. So if you would like to check out Candor, you can go to choosecandor.com forward slash Maddie. 
and use the code MADDIE10, all one word, MADDIE is all caps, for 10% off your order. Again, that is choosecandor.com forward slash MADDIE and use the coupon code MADDIE10 for 10% off. And MADDIE is with a Y in case you don't know. So check that out. Let me know if you have any questions or better yet, reach out to them if you have any questions. They're very responsive and see how healthily you can take back your mornings. Oh, plus an added bonus. Another healthy way to take back your morning is through sex. Let's head back on over. Okay, so differences between um, men and women and their fantasies. There's one thing that you said. You said um, in your in your research, you learned that women typically don't put as much focus and emphasis on who their partners are mm-hmm. in the fantasies, whereas men do. Right. Um, tell us more about that. Sure. So I asked people in your favorite sexual fantasy of all time, how important are the other people who are involved? How important is the setting in which your fantasy takes place? And how important is the specific sexual activity that, that's occurring? And one of the gender differences that I saw that was very consistent across fantasies was that men placed more emphasis on having a specific partner, whereas women placed more emphasis on the setting and environment in which their fantasies took place. Mm. And I think that this gender difference might be explained in part by the fact that women are more likely to see themselves in their fantasies as the object of desire, mm-hmm. whereas men are more likely to see themselves as acting on an object of desire. And so for men, having that very specific person in mind is, is more important. Mm. Uh, whereas for women, when they're the object of desire, who the other people <laughs> are, it doesn't matter as much. So I, I also asked the question, how often do you fantasize about having sex with a vague faceless person and women are much more likely than men to say they've had that fantasy right where it's just sort of like a headless torso if you will it's so funny like, yeah because it doesn't matter who's in it with me right. it really doesn't every once in a while I might include some people that I know um but it's very rare it's very rare that I think about that but I have spoken about fantasies with some of my friends and w- many times they talk about their fantasies and they say they definitely want the person to be basically faceless. Mm -hmm. They don't want the person to talk. They don't want to know their name. They don't want to know anything about them. They don't want to see their face. They just want to know what's going on and that's it. And it's real. that's really interesting. And I can see how it would be because we just were like, we're like, we want to be desired. Come hunt us down, chase us. And and it's really interesting too. When you think about Well, if you asked people on the street, you know, who's more into anonymous sex, men or women, right? Most people would say men, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is consistent with the the gender stereotype. But it's so fascinating then when you look at their fantasies and you see that women are much more likely than men to have these fantasies about this this totally anonymous person who's faceless. They Mm -hmm. don't even know whose identity it is. Okay. What would you say about women who are heterosexual having mostly fantasies about being with another woman. Mm-hmm. What does this mean? What does this mean, right? Like, because I know so many women right. that have these kind of thoughts and they're like, what does this mean about me? Do I like women? It's, first I should say it's a very normal fantasy. And when I say normal, I mean it is statistically common. I'm not making any kind of value judgment there. Just saying that if, you, if you're a woman and you have same-sex fantasies and you identify as heterosexual, you're in good company, right? So, so lots of other women have that. The question in terms of what does that mean is, is 
difficult to answer. Researchers have addressed it in different ways, but one of the key findings that speaks to it is they've done these studies where they show women different types of pornography while they measure their genital arousal. And what they find is that women are showing this genital response to all types of pornography, whether it's lesbian porn, gay male porn, or heterosexual porn. By contrast, when you look at, say, heterosexual men in terms of their genital responses to pornography, they pretty much only respond to porn featuring women. And if you look at gay men, they pretty much only respond to porn featuring men. Um, but for women, we see this more expansive response where they're um, not distinguishing as much between different sexual stimuli. And so some researchers have interpreted this as meaning that women's sexuality is just inherently more uh, fluid and flexible than men's is. And that might explain why women tend to be more open to the idea of and have more fantasies about same-sex experiences. Mm -hmm. This is something I would really love to see like continue to transform and to change because like this is one of those things that we were saying, we are talking about earlier about like in 30 years, what are we getting, you know, because I think we've made so much progress, obviously, with same-sex relationships, but there's still almost, not almost, there still feels like a very hard line between like the categories, like you are straight, mm -hmm. you are uh, bisexual, you are a lesbian or gay. And a lot of that is changing, but it takes stepping over a very, like, you have to very consciously say, okay, I'm going into more open territory in my sexuality. Like, it's a thing that happens. Mm -hmm. I don't think people just typically wake up one day and they're like, oh, I'm not going to put a label on me anymore. And some people do, for sure. But mm -hmm. I think normally it takes therapy. It takes, like, investigating yourself, diving deep, and, like, then saying, all right, I don't know what I am. All I know is I'm open to love. You know, now we're talking more about real life than fantasies. Right. But this is definitely something that I would love to see change because there's still a lot of taboo around like, oh, I'm kind of attracted to women or, or definitely the fantasies. If I think about, I think about women in my fantasies, but also like legitimately being attracted to women. And I just, I, I'm, I'm, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about this and reading a lot of studies and books about how 99% of like at least women are technically bisexual, which is really interesting. Um, and I don't have those studies. If anyone is curious what they are, just Google it, research it, look it up. But it, it's because of the amount of attraction we can have pretty much to the world. Because as like feminine creatures, we can just light up at everything. So technically, that's, what it, that's how the study is led there. And I might have that number wrong. But I know it was a very high number. It was a very high number. It was just like a, a large amount of women. And I think when you combine that, and the fantasies, it's just had a lot of people try to find the boxes to mm -hmm. put themselves in. Like, no, I'm really like, I'm hetero. Or, okay, maybe now I'm bisexual. Okay, maybe I'm just open and fluid. I don't know. Um, and I think all of that serves a purpose to have all of these categories that we now have. It's really great. I think categories help us a lot. And we can get stuck in trying to label it and identify it, mm -hmm. especially when we're having these conversations around fantasies. Um, and sometimes looking at fantasies and seeing what they might mean about us. So it's just a playground. It's just a place that I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I love having conversations like this to help people just really like open and expand a little bit more. And I think what you're speaking to gets to this idea that we have a sexual orientation, which kind of orients us to one or more genders. And then separate from that, 
we all have this degree of fluidity and flexibility that allows us to explore and develop other types of attractions. And so your fluidity or flexibility is sort of what allows you to be more or less open to, say, if you're predominantly attracted to the opposite sex to be more um, open to an experience with the same sex partner. So I think it's useful to, to think about orientation and fluidity as these two separate constructs mm. rather than all being one in the same. I like that. That's really useful. I like that a lot. Thank you. Okay. Another thing I was asked about a lot was threesomes. Mm-hmm. Tell us. Tell <laughs> us about threesomes. What do you know? Well, first I should say that threesomes are pretty much the most popular sexual fantasy. So I asked people to write out their favorite fantasy of all time in their own words and then to sum up their favorite fantasy in a single word. And I took all of those single word descriptions and I plugged them into a word cloud generator. And the first time I did this, all it said was threesome, (laughs) right? Because so many people said it. More than a third of participants wrote threesome as their favorite fantasy of all time. And if you ask people, have you ever had a threesome fantasy? It's more than 90% of men and women who say they've done so. So it's, it's very, very popular. Um, I do all the time. (laughs) And I don't know what their faces are. I just know that there's three of us. It's really interesting. Yeah. Keep going. (laughs) But one of the things I see in the threesome fantasies is that it's the fantasy that people are most likely to have, but also the fantasy that tends to work out the least well when people try and go and act on it. Oh, right. Okay. So that's a case where fantasy doesn't always match up to reality. Mm. And I think a big part of the issue there is that people don't really have a script for how a multi-partner scenario should go. And so they get into a threesome and they're like, who's supposed to do what with whom and when. And if you have a romantic partner that you're engaging in a threesome with, I think a lot of people find that they have these emotional responses that they didn't anticipate. Like they might suddenly become jealous if this other person shows attention to their partner. Uh, So there's a lot of what social psychologists call affective forecasting errors going on where people picture a fantasy scenario and they think, oh, that's going to be great when I do it. But then they actually go and do it and realize, oh, this, this is not at all what I pictured. Mm. Um, we're not very good at predicting our future emotional reactions. Mm. Yeah. This is, this is like a, this is an interesting place where I could, I, I could either go down path A where I share one of my own experiences I've had, <laughs> or I go down path B and I don't share anything at all. All I will say is that um, I have had an experience of some sort at some point in my life many moons ago, and it was traumatizing. It was terrible. Um, I actually felt... Uh, it, this is kind of separate from what we're talking about here because it's not like, oh, I have a fantasy. Let's act it out. It was, I felt more like prey to, to other people's fantasy, and they were much older than me, and it was handled without care. It was terribly handled, mm-hmm. and uh, this person is like a really well-known speaker and has a lot of power. And during the Me Too movement, this situation for me came up a lot. Like Mentally, I would think about this. Like This was a very sticky situation that I went through. So whenever I hear about threesomes, my body immediately is like, ugh. Like, ugh, I don't, like just bad, no, um, disrespectful. All these things come up. And I know those are my own stories from my own experiences. But I can also understand why it is not dangerous territory. It is uh, sensitive territory. Mm -hmm. There are three people, there are three different sets of traumas and places that are currently going through vulnerabilities and healing and they're coming together. And 
living in New York City and coming from Boulder, I know so many people who are very open with their sexuality, very polyamorous, mm -hmm. just very open, and it's beautiful. And they've had so many amazing experiences in connecting with other individuals, welcoming them in. And I've never been like that myself. I need like, I need like commitment. You're my boyfriend. Like we're in this together. Like I need to have one person feel super close, be able to have this emotional deep dive. And I've always felt a little bit weird in my circle of friends where they're all like love is love is love let's just like all love each other and I'm like not for me I can't and so it's interesting how my not shame but my feelings are the reverse mm -hmm. almost from the rest of people other people are like I'm weird for like wanting a threesome and I'm almost like everybody else wants them and I'm like no I don't want them like I'm weird um and it's just it's just shows how we're all so different we all have experiences yeah. of our own and and I'm agreeing with you in that the real life, it, it takes a lot of, as my friend put it, emotional acrobatics. It takes a lot of bouncing around, a lot of communication, and dare I say even a lot of planning if you're going to act out one of your fantasies in some way. It takes a lot of intention. It's a sacred experience, I think. Mm -hmm. Whatever your fantasy is, it should be treated with care, and it should be treated tenderly, and also to what you're saying, it's there's also a very high probability it's not going to go the way your fantasy went. So leave room if you're going to act out anything for it to be unpredictable. <laughs> right. And, and I think another part of the reason why threesomes don't work out so well is because people jump into it without having a lot of communication beforehand. Mm -hmm. uh, people also picture their threesome scenarios in very different ways. And more often than not, people want to be the center of attention. And so if you take three people who all want to be the center of attention and put them in that scenario, someone someone or multiple people are going to feel left out right mm. so so that's another issue is that you've got these competing desires for for how that experience should go and a lack of communication and i think that also adds to to some of the uncertainty and dissatisfied outcomes it's not to say that threesomes are always bad or you should never have them it's just as you were saying you need a lot of care planning and effort that goes into this and a desire to um be responsive to your other partner's needs and desires mm. as well. Can you tell us some of the most interesting fantasies that you received? Like ones that really stuck out to you that you're like, what? <laughs> so as a sex researcher, there's not a lot that surprises me anymore because I've kind of seen and heard it all. But the one that I always go back to when I get asked questions like this is the human cow fantasy, because that was something I learned about uh, in the process of, of writing this book and collecting these data. And this was a woman who said that her biggest fantasy is to be tied up in the center of town and force fed hormone, be force fed hormones that would make her lactate continuously. And people would just come and milk her whenever they wanted and have sex with her whenever they wanted. And so she's sort of this human cow in the, the center of town that, and, and that's what she's there for. And I thought this was really, really fascinating. It's got these BDSM themes to it, right? Because she's tied up, she's being force-fed hormones, but it also has this erotic lactation element, this forced sex element. Uh, and so I did a little bit of digging after I uh, learned about this fantasy and found that there's actually a whole porn genre devoted to it. Uh, it's called Human Cow, or sometimes Hugh Cow for short. And a lot of the porn is actually women's faces on cows bodies and there's all this erotic lactation happening and um wow. yeah it's there's if you can think of it there is porn for it wow 
I think I heard you talk about this in another podcast, maybe. So I had been thinking about this when I was hoping you could bring that <laughs> up. Um, yeah, I'm just like, so I'm soaking that in. I'm milking that for what it's worth, <laughs> so to say. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. I, um, I'm interested about how do we know if we want to act something out? Mm-hmm. Now, that gets to the question of what's the difference between a sexual fantasy and a sexual desire? And a sexual fantasy is just a mental thought or picture that that turns you on, right? A sexual desire is something that you actually want to do. Now, some of our fantasies are desires, but not all of them are. When you look at people's favorite fantasy of all time, that sort of go-to thing that they always keep coming back to over and over, I see that for most people that is a desire. About 80% of people say that they want to act on their favorite fantasy of all time at some point in the future. So with that favorite fantasy category, we see there there is a lot of overlap between fantasy and desire. But when you start looking at other fantasies, you know, sort of the one-off things people might have here and there, those aren't always desires. And in fact, mm. most of the time they aren't. Okay, besides the three sums, what are some other very, very common uh, desires, the ones that keep popping up over and over? Um, and maybe you've heard of those people actually acting them out too. Sure. I'm curious what those are. So BDSM is one of the big ones. That can take a lot of different forms, but a lot of it is just sort of power play in the bedroom, playing with dominance and submission, and sometimes with bondage. Uh, Another big category is just doing something that's new and different for you, having some adventurous sex. So sex in public is one of the really big ones. It's not really that people want to be watched having sex. They just want that thrill of, you know, somebody could potentially walk in and see us. And that sort of heightens the excitement Mm. for them. I don't know why I've never had that. I'm like (laughs) such a good girl, good girl, right? In quotation marks that I'm just like, I'm so nervous. Like I've definitely been asked or put in those kind of situations and it might have happened once or twice, but I never had the thrill from it. And I, it always just made me so nervous that I couldn't concentrate. I suspect there's a personality explanation there, right? So Mm -hmm. I think some people are very high in this personality trait called agreeableness, where they have a lot of care and concern for the well-being of others. And so if you're somebody who's highly agreeable, you'd be very concerned about, well, if somebody else did see me, what would their reactions be? Yes, that's what it is. Right? I'm, I'm super concerned because, and then also there's like an obligation to go have a, a deep conversation to tell them I'm sorry right. and ask them how they're doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, I should have told you we're going. Like, it's just, it's, yeah, it's definitely... Um, what kind of public places though? Like where, what is this normally? <laughs> oh, it's, it takes a lot of different forms. It could be in a public restroom. It could be in your office at work. It could be, um, you know, in a park or on a beach. It's just somewhere where there's a potential chance for somebody to, to walk in or walk by and see you. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I have done the beach thing. That is okay. Yeah. I don't really think of public, but yeah, that is definitely. But it, it depends how you're picturing it. Is it a secluded beach on a, you know, sort of. Well, this one happened. This one's, this was like one in the morning on a beach with no one else around. So but it was dark. It was so. dark. I was, yeah, that, see, that's like, okay, we can do that. And I was yeah. like, I was very young. I was probably like 20 or something like that. Okay. <laughs> this is fun. Everyone's learning so much about <laughs> me. I'm being so open in this. Um, what's another one besides the public places? Because I think you only mentioned one. Uh, some other public places people. No, want some to other um, besides or public, like wanting sex in public. What are some other of those really common thing, common desires that people mm-hmm. do act out? BDSM, 
public places. Anything else? Mm -hmm. uh, there are a few other ones. Um, so doing something that is taboo, right? Something that mm. is, is socially and culturally forbidden is, is a big one. And, you know, that, that kind of really depends on you and what sort of norms you were raised with. But, you know, sort of violating those, those rules and expectations is a big turn on for a lot of people. And something that falls into that taboo category that, that people often act on are, are fetish fantasies, you mm -hmm. know, just incorporating different um, objects into their, their, their like, sexual play. Like sucking on toes. Yeah. Food. Food is, is definitely a big one. Um, uh, also, you know, just various sexual objects, boots and um, panties and bras and all those like, other sorts like of things. Like wearing them or it, having sex with them? It, it depends. You know, this <laughs> takes different forms for different people. But uh, sort of bringing some of those fetish objects into um, uh, the bedroom is something that a lot of people are turned on by or they find enhances their arousal in some way. Interesting. Okay. I like that. Thanks for sharing that. The booze <laughs> thing I'm going to have to look into. I'm very curious what that is. Um, okay. What else did I want to ask? Okay. This is a very important topic and it's going to be treated with care. Um, the rape fantasy and the be being taken fantasy. Mm -hmm. Very curious about um, that in general. Just like, because for me, myself, I definitely have fantasies like this. I'm super open with it. I have been very open with most all of my partners about this when we start talking about fantasies and they've always given me a look. They're always like, what? Like, it's so fascinating to me how many people don't know how common this is. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know anyone who doesn't really have, you know, anyone I've talked to about fantasies. They've all said, yeah, I have that, I have that. It's, at least with women, I think it's very, um, it's starting to become more talked about. And we're like, mm -hmm. oh, you too, you too. And, but I think a lot of masculine figures don't quite know how we like, you know, we like that idea and it's mm -hmm. not, it's not meant to be mean anything necessarily. There could be a conversation if you want to act out something. Um, but what my question around this, I received specifically, so we're gonna have the specific question, but I also just want to know like your thoughts from research, mm -hmm. but I received a question from someone in Instagram who said, how do you navigate this situation? Having a being taken rape fantasy when you're actually a victim mm -hmm. of rape in your life. Yeah. So there are a couple things to say there. I think one is to start by normalizing the fantasy and relieving some of the shame around it. And one of the things that we can do there is to, to just help people understand how common these fantasies are. So what I see in my data is that among uh, self-identified women, it's about two thirds of them who report having had one of these four sex fantasies before. So it's the vast majority of women who, who have them. Uh, interestingly, a majority of men, more than half of men reported having fantasies about sex being forced on them as well. So it's not just women who, who fantasize I like that. about this. I like hearing that. I didn't yeah. know that. And I think a lot of people assume that this is a a fantasy for women because we hear about it and and that's where all the research has been focused is on women's for sex fantasies but i find you know it's actually pretty pervasive across genders sexual orientations so interesting and it's because people want well it's it's because people in general 
seem to be very much turned on by sexual submission. So yeah. more people fantasize about submission than they do about dominance. And I think this is one variant or expression of that. Um, but to go back to your question about, you know, what else can we do to, to help somebody who might be struggling with these fantasies, who, who has had an experience with sexual victimization, I think it's important to change the terminology surrounding them. I think when we call them rape fantasies, that conjures up this image of sexual assault. And when people have one of these fantasies, it's not that they are reenacting a previous trauma. It's not that they want to be sexually assaulted. Um, because when you look at these scenarios in the fantasy, you as the fantasizer are in control. It's taking place under your terms. You're choosing who the partner is and the, the terms and circumstances under which it takes place. So I think the term consensual non-consent is, is mm. one that I think is helpful for kind of labeling these fantasies and then separating that from the reality of sexual assault. So I think, and this is especially important in the Me Too era, it, it's for us to say, you know, you can have these four sex fantasies or consensual non-consent fantasies and, and still be a supporter of Me Too and so forth. And that doesn't mean that you're trivializing or legitimizing sexual assault. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad that you mentioned that about people who are self-identified males mm -hmm. because I've, when I've done some circles, cause I've done circles where we talk about what our fantasies are and I've been able to hear other people. And a lot of times when the men talked, they also talked about their, their desire to be desired. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, I just love thinking I'm so de desired. Someone just has to have me. And part of it's like probably being this very center of attention Leo where I'm just like, me, me, me. Like, I just want someone to have to ravish me. <laughs> but the part you're talking about with the consensual, what'd you say? Consensual, consensual non-consent. Right. It's like in a container. Mm -hmm. You have the container of it's with someone who I've agreed to role play this with or agreed to talk about this with, whatever it is. It doesn't mean you act it out at all. Um, it could just be something that you fantasize and that's it. It's the end of the day. It doesn't matter. Right. You just fantasize, you let it live out in your mind and you just enjoy it for what it's worth and know that you're being nourished in some way. My One of my teachers always talks about whatever your fantasy is, find out what it, what is it nourishing for you. What is it nourishing? And so if you have one of these fantasies to be taken, lovingly ravished, uh, consensually, non-consensually, <laughs> uh, what, what's being nourished in with, yeah. within you in that? And I think for me, like what's being nourished is the ability to surrender. Mm -hmm. Like just not having a choice. I don't, because a lot of times surrendering is a choice. Mm -hmm. It's like, do I fight the situation or stay in control or do I surrender? It's a choice. And so being take, lovingly taken, or however we want to describe it, in that kind of way, I don't have a choice. I'm being overpowered with something I actually want, someone that I actually want. And I'm also very aware of the fact I don't want this to happen. Right. Like this is, anytime I have a fantasy being taken, um, it's because I'm having the fantasy. I'm fully in control in the lack of control. I'm the one creating it. Doesn't mean I want it to happen. Right. And, and what you said there speaks to a lot of things I found in my data. One is that, just as you were saying, a lot of people with these consensual non-consent or forced sex fantasies, whatever it is you want to call them, 
they say this turns me on as a fantasy but i would never want to act on it because when you go to act on it you're giving up a certain amount of control to someone else and you don't know how that scenario is going to go so so that's very much true and then i think also in terms of looking at the underlying need that it's nurturing uh i find that for the vast majority of people men women uh trans across sexual orientations most people when they fantasize are meeting some emotional need whether it's through a threesome or a, a for sex fantasy there there is some underlying emotional subtext and oftentimes it is just about feeling wanted mm. and desired mm -hmm. and i think we often overlook this especially in men's fantasies right we tend to think that men are just all about gratifying a physical sexual urge and that's it right it's all about the orgasm for them it's not you know when you look at the data you see that men they want to feel wanted and men's fantasies and their desires they're very touchy-feely you know there's a lot of emotion under there and i think sometimes the gender stereotypes get in the way of our appreciation of that deeper emotional subtext mm. amazing <laughs> wow this was like one of the most intense interviews <laughs> just like how deep and how much we've covered in this yeah. um before we go into you sharing where everyone can connect with you online. So anything else that you want to share that hasn't been shared already? Anything, any personal tidbit or something that's coming up for you that you want to leave with my audience? You mean in terms of something to anything. I'm doing? And, no, any, <laughs> and, no, we're going to go into promotion in a second. Just okay. anything in general you want to leave them with. Okay. So I would say I think it's important to recognize that your fantasies are probably a lot more normal mm. than you think they are. Most people are fantasizing about the same things and you shouldn't feel so much shame and guilt and anxiety about that. The other thing is there's a lot of benefits to be had by getting more in touch with our fantasies, sharing them with a partner and maybe even acting on some of them. What I find is that the people who have shared and acted on their fantasies are the happiest and healthiest in terms of their mental health, but also oh. in terms of the health of their relationship, right? Because when you're sharing fantasies with a partner, you're creating intimacy through that self-disclosure process. So you need to find ways of integrating your fantasies into your relationships with your partners. And my advice there is always to, to start low, go slow. You know, you don't need to get all of your fantasies out there right away, but just start engaging with them. Don't don't hide them from your partner, and um, you know, sort of start at that more vanilla end. Share some fantasies, build up trust and intimacy, and then you can progressively become more revealing over time. And whether you want to act on them is is a decision you can make later on. Mm -hmm. Just because you have a fantasy doesn't mean you have to act on it. But if you are going to act on it, do some planning. Yeah, uh, the container. Do a lot of reading and have really great communication with your partner and no matter what your fantasy is have a safe word for it so that you can communicate to your partner that uh, this isn't turning out the way i thought it would or it's gone past my comfort zone mm, that was amazing those are really good tips thank <laughs> you where can people find you online uh, people can find me at my website, Sex and Psychology, which is at sexandpsychology.com. And it's a blog that I update several times per week, writing about the latest and greatest sex research in a way that people can understand and use. Uh, and then there are also links to my um, books, to my speaking engagements. And, and also, if you want to participate in a sex study, there are also links to, to different studies that are going on by researchers all around the oh, world. Oh, totally. I'll do that. Yeah. That sounds great. I'd love to contribute. Yeah. 
Uh, and I will make sure that I have the links to both the hardback. Do you have a paperback also? Paperback will come out next year. Right okay, now it's awesome. hardback, audio, and ebook. Yeah, and like I said, I, I have a, I have the Audible, and it was brilliant. So I'll make sure I include a link to that. If you're new to the podcast and you want to get a free audio book, you can do that, audibletrial.com forward slash mindbodymusings. I will include the link to that on the show notes for this episode. And before we go, I do have a quick fire round for you. Are you down? Sure. All right. Whatever pops up mentally first or okay. in your body <laughs> physically, um, who would you consider to be one of your top mentors? Oh. Uh, first name that comes to mind is my undergraduate psychology professor, Robin Powers. She mm. really inspired me to, to kind of go into the field. I love that answer just because it's so different from the tip. I love the spiritual answers. I love the spiritual teachers, but I also love that because you're such a researcher. You're mm -hmm. just like my professor. <laughs> it's so great. It's just different. It feels good. Well, she also taught my psychology of women course and oh, uh, just she sounds cool. shaped the way that I think in a, a lot of different ways. I love that. Yeah. It's very like down to earth. Yeah. It's very grounded. What do you want to be praised for more than anything? Oh boy. Um, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable answering that because <laughs> I, I am not someone that um, would come out and say I want to be praised. I know. You're <laughs> such a humble guy. I was excited about this question. It's going to make you think. I know. Um, I want to be praised for not wanting to be praised. <laughs> for being humble? Yeah, well, you are very humble. I will praise you for that. What is one must-read book besides your book, book, of course? Oh, must-read book. Hmm. Sorry, it's going to take me a second. That's okay. Take your time. <laughs> it's a hard question. Yeah. Oh, my God. Why am I not thinking of any books? Um, What's the last book you read? <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry, wait. There's got to be some book that inspired me because I've read a lot of different books. Um, when in doubt, people just say the alchemist. <laughs> Could say the alchemist, <laughs> or the untethered soul. Those are the two books. <gasps> I haven't read either of them. Really? No. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Next question. If you haven't read the alchemist, I'm just kidding. Okay, if something comes back to you, then let okay. me know. Um, mm, if you could live anywhere in the world besides your current home, where would it be? Uh. There's this beautiful beach town in Spain. It's called Sitges. It's mm, like 30-minute train ride outside of Barcelona. And it's just beautiful right on the Mediterranean. Are you from Spain? Is your family your lineage? No. My father's side is uh, French and German, and my mother's side is uh, Czech and Hungarian. I wouldn't have guessed any of that. Yeah. That's so interesting. <laughs> People never know where I'm from. Yeah. Um, there was, there's also an actor that you look a lot like. Uh, Justin Long. Is that who it is? I've been told that before. Yeah, you look, you look a lot like Justin <laughs> Long. Yeah. I think he lives here. Um, what's one of your favorite meals? What do you love to eat? So I actually, I cook a lot and I make a lot of Indian food. Mm. Um, my favorite, I love chicken tikka masala, but uh, chicken birani. Um, oh, uh, so many good things. <laughs> so good. Okay, I'll pick two more questions. It's a very long list of questions I have for these things, but I'll just pick two more. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Mm. I'm picking one that I feel like you as a researcher, like you, you, like you, you get. Okay, here's one. If you were an inanimate object, what would you be and why? Oh, 
any where? inanimate object. Wow. I've never th been asked that question. Never thought about that question before. Um, hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Now I feel like this is a psychological test. What is this going to say about me based on what my answer is? Um, I'm uncomfortable revealing it because now I'm thinking, what are the implications of this? <laughs> Anything. And uh, it could, we could just make it easier by saying, what would you be in this moment? It can, it can change, you know, in an hour. You might uh, want to be something different. But like right now, what kind of inanimate object do you feel like? I want to be a book. A book. Yeah. This is so weird because like two seconds ago before you answered, I was thinking, I bet he's going to say something like a book. Yeah. Yeah. Because for a couple different reasons. One is you can help people you can impart knowledge to people but you also get to be picked up and held right oh, so it's yes. like <laughs> it's a lot of different things all at win, once win. Yeah. i love it okay and this one is so fitting i have to ask what animal would you say describes your sex life oh boy or maybe your sex style <laughs> you can choose we'll have to guess <gasps> um also never been asked this question before I told uh, you, I told you at the beginning of this, I said, I ask questions that are different. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with wolf. Oh, that's a good <laughs> one. I like that. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This is like, I can feel this podcast is going to be really validating for a lot of people. And that's what my show is all about is simply validating feelings, validating thoughts, validating desires, validating ourselves. And I don't really know if there are many other ways we can truly do deep validation by simply validating our, what happens in our mind and our fantasies and especially our sexuality. That's a, that's a hub. Like if you can validate the hub of sexuality in your life, I feel like you're validating 20 other things at the same time because mm -hmm. that's a big part of our identity. So thank you for doing this massive study and this research and writing this book and providing this information and just devoting being devoted to this work thank you for having me and for sharing this information with your audience and that is a wrap that concludes another amazing episode another amazing guest on the mind body musings podcast if you want more episodes more insight more than what you even see on itunes stitcher spotify go to google type in mind body musings plus the topic of whatever it is you desire because chances are i've done a podcast on it and itunes can only hold so many episodes so if there's something you don't see chances are it exists you probably just have to listen on my website and while you're at it, go ahead and subscribe. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Mind Body Musings podcast. You never miss an episode on Wednesdays when they come out. And if you want to go even deeper, head on over to maddiemoon.com forward slash coaching to fill out a coaching application and to read more about how my coaching works, the time spans that I do, the commitment level, who would be a good fit, who... I typically tend to work with. I work with people in two different categories, really. One is all about the life. It's all about the feminine and masculine, healing perfectionism and anxiety, feeling your feels more, going into shadow work, softening up the edges in your life, dating again, relationships, spirituality, healing, 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 growing. And then I work with someone who wants all of that and to build a business. So we have this hybrid 
of working on growing ourselves and also creating something in the process. And so my coaching is so open for whatever it is that you desire and you bring to our sessions. And it's specifically tailored, of course, to whoever my client is. You get a lot of attention with me because I don't work with that many people at a time anymore. And if you're interested in my small group, um, by the time this is coming out, I'll probably be gearing up for another round. The small groups are phenomenal. They're an amazing way to get coaching with me at not much at all. Actually, it's less than my hourly rate. This last round, it was one month. It was four calls, so one call a week, and the total was 300. And my hourly call is more than that. So if you want to get time with me and meet other soul sisters and then be coached in a group atmosphere on Zoom where you're led through embodiment practices and you go into your shadow and you get one-on-one attention with me, please reach out, email me because they fill up fast. And even if this round won't be the right time, the next round might. So email me if even if your interest is just peaked and we'll start a conversation around that. My email is hello at mannymoon.com. I look forward to hearing from all of you who are interested in any of these deep dives. And until then, have a great rest of your week, weekend, and I'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you.